ladies and gentlemen, a formal welcome. One second. One second. A new disclaimer thing. It's a new feature. Is it a new feature? Is it's telling us it's recorded, and if we want to continue or to leave the session. So what are we doing? Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. Well, up. Up fully Ray, you have to click on continue. I, I hope that you continue. So this is a new Zoom feature. Interesting. Yes. As of today. Wow. Wow. All right. I guess it makes sense. All right. Yes. Fine. Good. Well, we want, uh, we want the Torah to be preserved. So hopefully um, we'll get everybody in with us on this. All right. So I'm going to open up my screen. Well, I guess uh, one thing's for sure. Um, Zoom is not schluffing. They are not taking a break. They are active, creating new features. Okay, well, this is Daily Power Parsha. Today is Monday, May 24th, and we have a brand new Torah portion, which I am about to show you in the shared screen. Torah portion is Bahalotcha. And you can just study along with me as we go through it. So this is going to be Numbers chapter 8, verse number 1. Let's jump right in. All right. First mitzvah is about the menorah. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron, of course Aaron was the high priest, and say to him, When you light the lamps, the seven lamps shall cast their light toward the face of the menorah. Now, if you recall, already in the book of Exodus, like two books ago, we read about the instruction to build the menorah. We've read about the instruction to, 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 you know, to prepare the olive oil for the menorah. But how do you light it? You know, the specifics, how do you light it and all that stuff. So here the Torah gives us a little bit of a quick insight into this. When you light the seven lamps of the menorah, they should all face toward... Well, it says they shall cast light toward the face of the, of the menorah, which is the subject of some dispute. But the simple understanding is they should all point toward the center branch. Now, this is something we've talked about. I know you and I have talked about this many times, but just to kind of make sure that we're on the same page here, the Hanukkah or the Hanukkah, the Hanukkah menorah that we use today has nine branches, four on each side and a center. So four, four, and one, which is nine. The temple menorah was three three and one, three, three and one for a total of seven branches. And the middle one was not a shamish, which is a helper candle and therefore it's higher set off from the other eight candles because the eight is the, is the, is the mitzvah and the one is the helper. No, the temple menorah, all seven were part of the mitzvah. So three, one and three and all were the same you know, the same level, the same height, and they were all mitzvah lamps. The Torah says when you light the lamps, they should face toward the center, which is kind of what we did in our jewelry workshop. Right, Donna? Yes. When we did the, um, the bracelets, right? The, right, because it had the center, the center gold. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we had a, we had a, we had a, um, uh, a flame yeah. flourish, no? We had, so the the bracelet had the inserts 
of the gold rings, which represented on each side right. four flames, and then in the center was a round gold disc, which represented the helper candle. Yes. Okay, good. Now, if you take a look at Rashi, which I just brought up on the screen, so Rashi explains what does it mean toward the face of the menorah. Rashi quotes the Talmud, and he says, toward the middle lamp, and that's what I told you a moment ago, which is not on one of the branches, but the menorah itself, right? The middle lamp is not one of the branches that extends, but it's the center stem, right? It's the center, I don't know what you would call it. It's the trunk. Does a menorah have a trunk? Trees have trunks. I don't know, but it's the cent It's the middle of the menorah. That's the center, that's the center uh, middle lamp. And the other, the other six are protruding three on each side. Um, it's appropriate. Oh, wait, did I just stop sharing? Whoops. It's appropriate to mention, I believe, that um, the Rebbe was, um, the Rebbe advocated for a, an acknowledgement of Rashi and Rambam. Rashi and Maimonides' um, understanding of the menorah, which is not a curved um, candelabra, but one that has diagonals. So if I were to... If I were to, I don't know how I'm gonna do this. No, I was gonna like see if I could pull up a whiteboard to draw it for you. But I think you've all seen the pictures, right? The Arch of Titus has that rounded menorah. And according to the Rambam, Maimonides, according to Rashi, our go-to commentary, that was not the temple menorah. It might've been another candelabra in the temple compound, but it wasn't what it looked like. It was a menorah with diagonal branches. And that's why the Chabad menorahs um, even on Hanukkah, try to kind of publicize that element of the Temple Menorah. Okay, let's continue. This, verse number four. This was the form of the menorah. It was hammered work of gold, which as you and I know from previous discussions, means that it was hammered out of one solid block of gold. That's what it means, miksha, was hammered out of one piece, not welded together. From its base to its flower, it was hammered work according to the form that the Lord had shown Moses so did he construct a menorah. Moses had difficulty in understanding what it was supposed to look like, as honestly, you and I can probably relate to when we read those Torah portions that talk about how to build the, 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 the tabernacle with all the items. And we're like, what's an ama again? What's the, what does this look like in three-dimensional real life? Right? So Moshe had some questions about the menorah, so God showed it to him. All right, let's continue. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take the Levites from among the children of Israel and cleanse them. So this is a ritual purification for the Levites, for the Levim. Remember, Moses also was a Levite. So this is his brothers, so to speak, his mishpacha, his family. I mean, we're all family, but his closer family or close family. So here we go. This is what you shall do to them so as to cleanse them. And by the way, we spoke about this also before in Leviticus when he inaugurated the tabernacle, he did this to get the Levites up and running. So sprinkle them with cleansing water and pass a razor over all their flesh, to shave their hair, and then they shall wash their garments and cleanse themselves. They shall, then they shall take a young bull with its meal offering of fine flour mixed with oil, mingled with oil, not mixed, mingled with oil, and you shall take a second young bull as a sin offering. You shall bring the Levites in front of the tent of meeting, and you shall gather the entire congregation of the children of Israel. 
you shall bring the Levites before the Lord. And the children of Israel shall lay their hands upon the Levites. That's not a, an act of a scuffle, but in, a, in, a, in an act of respect. Then Aaron shall lift up the Levites. Aaron is a Kohen. shall lift up the Levites as a waving before the Lord on behalf of the children of Israel, that they may serve in the Lord's service. And this is how a, the Levites were inaugurated into the service with this protocol. The Levites shall then shall, shall lay their hands on the heads of the bulls and make one as, as a sin offering and one as a burnt offering to the Lord to atone for the Levites. That's how the Levites came into their appointment. You shall present the Levites before Aaron, the Kohen, the high priest, and his sons, the other Kohanim, and lift them as a waving before the Lord. Thus, hey Mark, good to see you. Thus shall you set apart the Levites. Look at you sliding in with uh, perfect timing. Thus shall you set apart the Levites, Mark is a, is a levy, from the midst of the children of Israel, and the Levites shall become mine. All right, I guess Mark is spoken for, because Mark belongs to God, because God says they are mine, not anyone else's. So this is the process by which they were inaugurated and appointed into the service. There was some mikvah action, there was some shaving action, there was some waving action, there was some sacrificial action, there was some hand-placing action, and that is the deal. While this pomp and circumstance, or pomp and ceremony, or whatever the right phrase is, um, the answer is because they had an, a very, very special job. And part of that is you have to feel they have a special job. And when there's a protocol behind it, that, a ritual behind it, that, that, that just creates part of that experience and the ambiance and, and just um, you know, reinforces that this is, this is something legit. Um, it's no different than, than all of the rituals that we have in our own lives. You know, rituals kind of lead to a sense of, a sense of valuing something, a sense of, of, um, of importance. Okay, I'm going to toggle Rashi and see if there's any Rashis that I wanted to mention. Um, okay, here we go. Do, 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 do. Interesting. Why was it that they had to shave their hair? So Rashi explains that I found... Actually, let's do both of these Rashis. They were sprinkled with cleansing water. This is not just the mikvah. This is from the ashes of the red cow, the red heifer, which is the, 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 the highest form of purification is through the ashes of the red cow, the red heifer, mixed with pure water. Why, were they, why was this part of the Levite um, appointment protocol? So as to cleanse them from contamination by those who are in contact with the dead. In other words, before they begin their service, Let's just do a default cleansing to make sure everybody, all the Levites, are good to go. And then you pass a razor over all their flesh. So Rashi says, I found in the writings of Rabbi Moses Hadarshan, Rabbi Moshe the preacher. And he says, look, since they, the Levites, were submitted in atonement for the firstborn who had practiced idolatry when they worshipped the golden calf. Remember, the Levites got the gig because the firstborn blew it. The firstborn we're dancing around the golden calf. So God says, ah, you guys, forget about it. I'm giving it to the Levites. So since that's the case, that their whole position came through some others 
um, worshiping idols, which is called sacrifices to the dead, and one afflicted with sarat is considered dead, they thus required shaving like those afflicted with sarat. In other words, they had emerged from death. What does that mean? They were appointed from those that had worshipped the golden calf, which is a dead idol. So they had emerged from that state of devastation. And like the person afflicted with sarat, when a person gets out of that state of devastation, part of the protocol is shaving all the hair, reset, new start. And that's what the Levites did as they were appointed to their service. I hope that makes sense. I think it's a very, very interesting um, angle that Rashi quotes from Rabbi Moshe Hadarshan, which, by the way, is out of character for Rashi. You and I know this. Rashi, his stated objective is to explain the simple meaning of the verse. If you want to drush off, you want something more exotic, there's an app for that. There's a, there's a, there are commentaries for that. But if you want the straightforward explanation, that's Rashi. Rashi here deviates from that and quotes a, 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 the Rabbi Moshe Hadarshan. He quotes someone who's giving more of a midrashic, more of a drush, more of a homiletical understanding, um, an allegorical understanding, and not a necessarily simple understanding. Rashi does that when it's difficult to explain the simple meaning otherwise. So he has to lean on something a little bit more exotic at times, even to explain it from a simple level. Okay. Um, let's jump in. Let's see if there's any other Rashi's. And if not, we're going to go, go straight to the second reading. Um, okay. Yeah, wavings as well is like Gatsarat. So yeah, there's a strong connection. It's interesting. There's a strong kind of association that we're seeing between the Levites and someone who has recovered from Tzarat, that skin ailment that is, um, that is considered as you know, akin to death almost on a certain level. And, and someone who gets out of that is like reborn into a new state, certainly spiritually, like from a place of gossip to a place of you know, healing. Um, the Levites emerge from a place of doom and gloom, from the, from the darkness of the golden calf. So we could kind of see that type of connection. All right, second reading. I think we're ready to roll. Numbers chapter 8, verse number 15. Let's continue with the Levites. Following this, which includes the sprinkling of the, of the paraduma water, the red heifer water, the haircut, the, um, uh, the, the waving, the sacrifices. So following this, the Levites shall come to serve in the tent of meeting. You shall cleanse them and lift them as a waving. For they, take a look at this. You're going to love this verse, 16. For they are wholly given over to me, completely given over to me, God says, from among the children of Israel. Instead of those that open the womb, that's uh, firstborn, right? Instead of the firstborn, instead of those that open the womb, all the firstborn of Israel, instead of those guys, I have taken them, them meaning the Levites, for myself. The Levites got the gig because the firstborn dropped the ball with the golden calf. But here's what I want to focus on. They're wholly given over to me. In the Hebrew, it doesn't say that. It says, Nisunim, Nisunim Heimali. Nisunim, Nisunim means given, given. It's a double expression. If you see the words that I highlighted, it's literally, and I know we're right before the, uh, the Hebrew course, we're hours before the Hebrew course. Nonetheless, right, it's the same word. Repeat it twice, nisunim, nisunim, which means given, given. That's why the translation is 
wholly given, in other words, like definitely given, but Rashi says something else. Hebrew nisunim nisunim. This double expression, a double expression denoting two types of given over. They're given over for the service of carrying and given over for the singing. Nisunim nisunim means they were dedicated. They were given over. They were appointed for two tasks. Nisunim nisunim. They were schlepping and they were singing. And by, by now you know that I mean schlepping with all... Oh, I keep on doing that. With all respect and love. Um, one second. I keep on trying to toggle off Rashi and I'm ending up uh, stopping this share. So excuse me for a moment as I pull this back up. Okay, here we go. Let's try it again correctly. Okay, so this is Nisunim Nisunim. They have two jobs. And as I explained last week, I even mentioned this on Shabbos because I really love this idea that it's up to us how we view the burdens that we, sorry, the weights that we carry. Is it a burden or is it beautiful? Is it a pain or is it a pleasure? Right? That's how we choose to decide. I, mean, I think I mentioned this. Did I tell you guys that I'm working on another book? Have I mentioned this? Yes? No? A book about the Rebbe's no. guidance? Personal guidance no, and advice? Not. Sorry? No, you did not. Well, the cat's out of the bag. There you go. So, yeah, working on... Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, DPP, this is where all the breaking news is. Yeah, they used to say back, in the, even today, but you know, you get your news in the mikvah. Like, man, in the morning, if you go to mikvah every day, so that's where everyone discusses the morning, you know, the morning news in the mikvah. They, they say a joke about um, Bill Clinton once wanted to see how, new, how the, you know, this is maybe before the election, he wanted to see like what the New York Jews are thinking about him. So he, you know, disguised himself, goes to mikvah. Whatever, I'm not going to get into details here. Okay, whatever, maybe switch out the president. It doesn't matter which president you're thinking, who cares? The, the punchline, you'll get the punchline in a second. He goes in and he says to some guy, so what, do you, what, do you, what have you heard about Clinton? What do you think about Clinton? He says, I don't know about him as president, but rumor has it that he's uh, heading over to a mikvah today. Anyway, so mikvah is where all the news breaks. Um, but DPP for us is, this is, where, this is where the action happens. Yeah, so I'm working on, Working on a book, I'm actually not writing it. I'm, I'm, I'm editing and kind of shaping and guiding it, but, but playing a pretty, a pretty um, significant role in the book and doing a lot of writing myself. But it, the, the premise is, you know, core ideas that the Rebbe used in letters and correspondences with people and, and really mentoring and counseling people to kind of get uh, to help in, in various ways, whether it's, you know, emotional stuff or psychological stuff, whatever, across the board. Um, just ideas of counseling. And one of the major themes is this idea of perspective. And this is a chapter that I actually worked on last night. It's like, there's, there's always going to be good and there's always going to be the not so good. And the question is simply this, what are you focused on, right? What do you, how do you see it? What are you focused on? Are you focused on the negative or the positive? It's like the, somebody wrote, it's, there's a few letters like this, but somebody wrote to the Rebbe saying essentially, you know, I've never had anything good in my life. The Rebbe says, I'm shocked that you said this. Because you, in the same letter that you write that, that, that you've never had anything good happen, you write about your family and your kids and all that stuff. And the Rebbe says there's so many people that don't have a family, don't have kids, that want, etc. And you take things for granted that people simply don't have. And, you know, of course, you know that the Rebbe also didn't have children. And, 
that was something certainly that weighed on the Rebbe's mind, at least I believe as the Rebbe is writing that letter. And the point is, what are we looking at? Are we looking at the blessings that we have or are we looking at, uh, you know, what, what to complain about? So again, not a criticism. Obviously, what the Rebbe was not criticizing. The Rebbe was trying to re, refocus the attention on the blessing. So I would say in a similar way, nisunim, nisunim. Yeah, we have to carry a burden. The question is, do we look at it, perspective, as something, you know, negative and, 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 and you know, annoying and, you know, it's a pain, it's, it's difficult, or do we look at it as a privilege? It's like the same thing with Judaism in general. Is it a privilege or is it a pain? You know, the old, the old refrain that many Jews had you know, in, in, in the shtetl and even, you know, in the early years of uh, Jewish life in the U.S. was that it's, it's schwer to zaniyid. It's difficult to be a Jew. It's hard to be a Jew. And, I mean, it, unintended consequences, it created a mindset in, that, in the younger generation that Judaism is something to run away from. Because who wants to be part of a, something that's so, that's, so, that's so difficult or so painful or so you know, um, you know, what, traumatizing. So it's no surprise that people ran away from it. It's the, 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 another way to look at it is it's a pleasure to be a Jew or it's a privilege to be a Jew. And the challenges, you know, anything worth having is going to come with challenges. So that's, that's the way. It, anyway, it's a really question of focus. Let's continue. But anyway, Nesunim Nesunim, it's all about this double task of caring and singing. The question is, do we sing what we carry? We will if we realize that it's a privilege. Now, verse number 17. For all the firstborn among the children of Israel are mine, whether man or beast, since the day I smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I have sanctified them for myself. In other words, the firstborn are still gods, but God says, but you're not going to serve in my temple. You're not going to have that. I mean, you still owe me one, like big time, because I saved you guys while I took out the Egyptian firstborn. So you, you're definitely like, you know, in a state of owing me your existence and you're sanctified to me. But as far as who's going to serve in the, in the, in the tabernacle, in the temple, that's the Levites. And I've taken the Levites instead of all the firstborn of the children of Israel. I have given the Levites as a gift to Aaron, the high priest, and his sons, the priests, from among the children of Israel to perform the service for the children of Israel in the tent of meeting and to atone on behalf of the children of Israel, so that the children of Israel will not be inflicted with plague when they approach the sanctuary. So again, part of the Levite role is to assist in the service and to make sure that no one goes there when they shouldn't go there. So, Verse 20, Moses, Aaron, and the entire congregation of Israel did this to the Levites. The children of Israel did in accordance with all that the Lord had instructed Moses regarding the Levites. They, um, you know, placing the hand on that. What they, they did the whole, everything we, we've been reading today. The Levites cleansed themselves and washed their clothes. Then Aaron lifted them as a waving before the Lord, and Aaron atoned for them to cleanse them. After that, the Levites came to perform the service in the tent of meeting before Aaron and before his sons. They did it to them just as the Lord had commanded Moses regarding the Levites. Okay, here we go. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, This is the rule concerning the Levites. From the age of 25 years and upwards, and I know what you're thinking, 25, we said 30. 
Hold on. From the age of 25 and upwards, he shall enter the service to work in the tent of meeting. I'm going to explain this in a moment. From the age of 50, he shall retire. That's an early retirement. 50, you're done. 50, retirement. From the work legion. And do no more work. Um, he shall minister with his brethren in the tent of meeting to keep the charge. So there is stuff that this 50-year-old plus Levite does do, but he shall not perform the service. Thus shall you do for the Levites regarding their charge. Let's talk about Rashi. If I can get this right this time. Rashi says 25. So, sorry, the, the Torah says 25 years old and up. They enter the service, and obviously this is like a massive contradiction. As Rashi says, elsewhere, like a bunch of times it says, from the age of 30 to 50. So what's this 25 business? How can this be reconciled, Rashi asks. However, from the age of 25, they came to study the laws of the service. In other words, they apprenticed for five years. They trained on the job for five years. The other training and education was before that also. But on-the-job training apprenticeship was 25 to 30. They would study for five years, and at the age of 30, they would begin work. They would get their certification, their stamp, off and running. From here, we learn that a student who does not experience success in his learning for five years will never experience it. Here you go. There's like a little bit of a, of a some, it's from the Talmud, Chulin 24a. The Talmud says, by the way, from here we see, you know, the Levites learned for five years, then they became Levites. But if a person learns for five years and doesn't get it, you might want to find another job. If a person's learning to be, you know, a shoemaker, and after five years still doesn't know the, the toe from the heel, I mean, you know, so to speak, said no one ever. So then maybe look for something else to do. Maybe look for a different job and, um, and try to, to pursue something else. Okay. Rashi clarifies what happens at the age of 50. It says he shall retire from the work legion, but it also says that he should, in verse 26, that he still has some jobs to do. So what exactly is he not doing and what could he still do? Rashi clarifies, and let's get the definitive idea here. It's Torah says, do no more work. Rashi says, i.e., that's referring to the work of carrying on the shoulders. This is really important. Remember the family of Kahat? There were three families. The family of Kahat, they carried the tabernacle furniture. Okay, that holy vessels. Ark, menorah, showbread table, altars. They carried them with the poles. Remember they were built with poles? They carried them on their shoulders. So Rashi clarifies that only the work of carrying on the shoulders ends at 50. However, he can return even after 50 to the work of locking the gates, singing, and loading the wagons. So the other jobs he can do. He meaning a, an over 50-year-old Levite. It's just the carrying the shoulders that can't be done. This is the meaning of he shall minister with his brethren. In the next verse, with his brethren, etc. Yeah, okay. Fine. And what does it mean to keep the charge? Rashi adds one more piece, and then we're going to close it out here for the Chumash. We're going to jump into Mishnayis. Don't worry, we're not done yet. To keep the charge, Rashi says, that means to camp around the tent and to assemble. Uh, the tent means that... Um, 
the Mishkan area, and to assemble and dismantle it at the time of the travels. Okay, so we have an idea about the Levites. This was very strong um, Levite focus. Um, tomorrow, we have a wonderful discussion. Need to just double check. Yeah, we should be good tomorrow. Tomorrow we have a wonderful discussion. It's going to be about the second Passover. I'm sorry, not the second Passover. The Passover that the Jewish people did. Oh, no, and is oh, yeah, no. The second, the, the first anniversary of Passover, how they observed it in the desert. And we're going to learn about Pesach Sheni, the second Passover. So all of that is coming up tomorrow in an exciting Bahalotra. All right, that is it for today. For the Chumash. All right, we're going to do Mishnayis in, in just a moment. I should mention also, for those of you that were by Nassin's Bar Mitzvah, anybody here by, yeah, some of you guys were by Nassin's, my oldest son's Bar Mitzvah. By the way, my oldest son just turned, it's crazy that I'm saying this because it, the math doesn't work in my head but he just turned 17. I, I know. Whatever. Anyway, four years ago was a bar mitzvah and... Happy huh? Happy birthday. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, so, so um, his bar mitzvah parasha is this one, Baloscha. So, brings back good memories and um, good times. Good times, great oldies. All right, let's jump back into the screen. Baba? Yeah. Baba? Donna. You know, you meant in the reading we saw like five years. If you don't make it in five years, forget. So one uh, Rabbi Schusterman's uh, blog last week was saying the permanence of three. Right. Yeah. Right. It's interesting, right? Three has three establishes a chazaka. Three establishes something as being set. But here, there's an I guess another angle on you know education or apprenticeship that five years is kind of like the. You know, the litmus test, if you will. Like, if it's not going in five years, you know, try something else. You know, don't, don't keep on heading down a path if it's, if it's not taking root in five years. Anyway, so, um, again, you know, the disclaimer is DPP does not take responsibility for any financial advice. Past performance is not, not indicative of future results. You know, investment is all, investing is always, um, anyway. Good. Let's jump into the Mishnayis. Okay, I'm going to share my screen again, and we're going to pull it up. So this is the Mishnayis in honor of my grandfather, um, in loving memory of Tzvi Hirsch ben Chaim Mishayoa Kohen. So we're studying Tractate Brachot, and we are up to chapter 4 of the Tractate Brachot. Okay, let's jump in. So now, here's what we're doing. I'll pull up some commentary here. I'm just, I'm just arranging my screen here for the benefit of, here we go. Okay, introduction, you ready? Chapter four, introduction. You can see, can you guys see the right side of the screen? Is that showing up at you guys? Ish, yes, okay. By me, like, the face is blocked, so I have to move stuff around. Okay, whatever. Your mileage may vary.
Okay, the fourth and fifth chapters of Brachot are all about the tefillah. Tefillah literally means prayer, but as we've discussed previously, tefillah is a euphemism or refers to the Amida, the central prayer which we call today, which we today call the Amida or the Shemona Esrei. Due to its 18 benedictions, actually 19, okay, fine. The tefillah is the central piece of rabbinically created liturgy. Okay, I'm going to skip, this is a bit of a longer introduction than I, than I would like. Okay, we're going to jump into the Mishnah. So we talked about the Shema for the first few chapters. Now we're talking about the Amidah. Still prayer, but now we're talking about the Amidah. When can you say the Amidah until? Take a look. This Mishnah, back inside the actual Mishnah, which is on the left side of the screen, the main body of the text. This Mishnah determines the times beyond which the different prayers may not be recited. In other words, where, where do those prayers kind of, what are the parameters of the, of the prayers? According to the rabbis, the morning prayer, Shachris, may be recited until noon. That means the Amidah in the morning, you can say it until noon. Rabbi Yehuda said, Rabbi Yehuda says it may be recited only until four hours after sunrise. Remember, noon is about halfway through, which is about six hours. Rabbi Yehuda says, no, not six hours, four hours. He brings it in a few hours, makes it earlier, makes the cutoff earlier. According to the rabbis, so that's, a, that's one dispute. That's for Shachris. According to the rabbis, the afternoon prayer, which we know as Mincha, may be recited until the evening. Rabbi Yehuda says it may be recited only until the midpoint of the afternoon, known as Plag HaMincha, which is the midpoint of the period that begins with the sacrifice of the daily afternoon offering and ends in nightfall, which is, at the, which is the end of the afternoon. I believe it's about an hour and a quarter before nightfall. So what we have here is, um, with regard to the morning prayer, one, the, the, the general consensus of rabbis is you have till six hours into the day, which is noon. Rabbi Yehuda says, no, f- only four hours. What about the afternoon prayer? The general consensus of the rabbis is you have until nightfall. And what does Rabbi Yehuda say? No, an hour and a quarter before nightfall. So again, he's making it a little bit um, earlier than the general consensus. What about the night? What about the arvis, the mairiv? What about the evening prayer, the nighttime prayer? The evening prayer may be recited throughout the night and is not fixed to a specific hour. According to the rabbis, the additional prayer. What is the additional prayer? Um, the additional prayer is musaf. So right, on Shabbat or holidays, we, we recite an additional prayer, which is known as Musaf. So the additional prayer of the Musaf may be recited all day. And Rabbi Yehuda says, no, not all day. It only may be it may recited only until seven hours after sunrise. So that would be like around 1 p.m. If sunrise is 6, that would be about 1 p.m. So he says, you got to get in early. I probably don't need to mention this, but I, I, I will anyway. The way it works in Halacha is that when there's a machloket, when there's a dispute, you go by the majority. And in this case, you have the majority of rabbis that give extra time and one rabbi, Rabbi Yehuda, that says, no, it's a smaller window. We don't paskin, we don't rule like Rabbi Yehuda, we have the much broader window. I will also say that even if you didn't say the Amida in the morning and it's past midday, you can still do it in the afternoon, do it whenever, I mean, not past nightfall if it's the morning prayer, but you can, st- you, can, you can still do it. It's not ideal, but you can still do it. And if it's a choice between doing it or not doing it, do it. 
All right, Mishnah number two. In addition to the laws, the halachot related to the fixed prayers, the Gemara relates, I guess. Maybe the Mishnah relates. All right. Rabbi, it's, it's, we're studying Mishnah, so I'm not sure Gemara, but Rabbi Nechunya ben Akana. He was one of the great rabbis back in the day. Rabbi Nechunya ben Akana would recite a brief prayer upon his entrance into the study hall and upon his exit. In other words, when he came in to the Beit Midrash, he would say a prayer. And when he left, he said a prayer. They said to him, the study hall is not a dangerous place. That would re- warrant a prayer when entering and exiting. It's not like you're going into, uh, you know, I don't know. Not, so, so what room is there for this prayer? Why are you saying a prayer for, like, what are you saying a prayer for? He said to them, upon my entrance, I pray that no mishap will transpire caused by me in the study hall. In other words, he's basically praying that no one should misinterpret what he says. So that, you know, nothing, um, he shouldn't say anything wrong or give any fault, uh, uh, um, in, uh, incorrect rulings and lead people astray. That's his prayer when he comes into the study hall. And upon his exit, upon my exit, I give thanks for my portion. I thank Hashem for the ability that I have to study Torah and the, the, the part of Torah that I was able to study and master and even maybe contribute to. Beautiful, beautiful idea about Torah study and, and, and the convergence between prayer and Torah study. Number three, Mishnah three, chapter four, Mishnah three. The Mishnah decides a dispute with regard to the obligation to recite the Amidah prayer, also known as Shemun Esrei, the prayer of 18 blessings, or simply as Tefillah prayer, which we mentioned before. So here we go. Rabbi Gamliel says, each and every day, a person recites the prayer of 18 blessings, the Shemun Esrei. Rabbi Yeshua says, no, a short prayer is sufficient. And one only recites an abridged version of the prayer of 18 blessings. Basically, Rabbi Rabbi Yeshua says, ah, give him the cliff notes. Give him the spark notes. Do a quicker version. You don't need to do the full 18. Rabbi Akiva says there's an intermediate option. Rabbi Akiva finds the middle ground. If he's fluent in his prayer, he recites the the full deal. He recites the prayer of 18 blessings. And if he's not so fluent, he need only recite an abridged version of the prayer of 18 blessings. I will say that today, in synagogues that I'm familiar with, pretty much everyone does the full version to the best of their ability. If you look in your prayer book, standard editions, whether it's Art Scroll or Chabad, whatever it is, you're not going to find, I don't believe, certainly not in the Chabad version, you're not going to find the abridged version. Um, you're not going to find the cliff note version, the, uh, the shorter version. But it's, the spirit of this is important. What that text is exactly is the Talmud discusses and, and the Halachas discuss. But the main thing to know is that there's a full, a full version. But at the same time, there's an understanding that not everyone's going to be able to get through or understand the full version. And so there's always an option. And as I say many times when people ask me a related question, you know, am I allowed to pray in English? My classic go-to answer, which many rabbis uh, say as well, is God understands all languages. He also understands if you need to do an abridged version. So God's a very understanding God. But the Shema Nasser the Amida is a very special prayer, and ideally we do the full deal. All right, number four. Rabbi Eliezer says, One whose prayer is fixed, his prayer is not supplication and is flawed. 
If you fix your prayer, fix means you establish it, then it's no good. The question is, what in the world does that mean? What in the world does that mean? How, how is fixed a bad thing? So the answer, what the, the, the Talmud gives an answer. Yeah. The Talmud explains that what is, what is Rabbi Lezer saying? It's really a, a beautiful idea here. Rabbi Lezer is saying, is, is saying if, if your prayer is fixed, it's no good. What does it mean, fixed? It means if your prayer becomes rote. R, I think it's spelled R-O-T-E, rote. Um, or what's another word for rote? If it, mechanical. If it becomes robotic. Uh, right, mumbling the words. Uh, fixed. That prayer is fixed means that it's like cookie cutter. It's bland and lifeless and autopilot. Maybe that's a better word. If your prayer is autopilot, then it's not supplication. It's not coming from the heart. And it's not prayer. Rabbi Lezer is telling us that, you know, we're talking about the, 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 I think it's perfect timing, by the way, because we're talking about the, 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 the mechanics of prayer. When you do it, and, you know, we're talking about like the when, and Rabbi Lezer reminds us that you also have to have your heart into it. You also have to feel it and mean it. And that's when it becomes prayer. All right, Rabbi Yeshua says, one who cannot recite a complete prayer because he's walking in a place of danger, right? Imagine, you're in a place of danger. You don't have time to bust out the whole Amida. So he recites a brief prayer. And he says like this, Redeem, Lord, your people, the remnant of Israel, at every transition, which the Talmud will elaborate on, may there, in other words, at every turn, every critical junction, may you, Hashem, remember and, and redeem your people. May their needs be before you. Blessed are you, Lord, who listens to prayer. That's short and sweet. That's a nice little prayer right there. But again, that's only when, he says, you're walking in a place of danger and you can't, uh, you know, bust out the Amida. Let's continue um, with mission number five. Interesting. Wow. You're going to love this. While praying, one must face toward the direction of the Holy Temple, which, by the way, is why in synagogues in the United States, we pray facing east because Jerusalem is east. In South Africa, first time I was in South Africa, I asked my father-in-law, where's Mizrach? Mizrach means east in Hebrew because I'm so used to asking that question. Where, where's Mizrach? Where's east for praying the Amida? He's like... You don't need to know where east is. You need to know where north is here. Because <laughs> you're praying in South Africa, you're praying north. So it's just, you know, a bit of a mind shift um, for that. So here's the, and I think in England, what do they do in England? Is it also east or is it south? I don't know. Whatever they do in England, they do in England. Um, okay, so while praying, back to number five. While praying, one must face toward the direction of the temple. Now, what if you're riding on a donkey? This is before um, Ubers, right? So what if you're on a donkey? So, and your GPS is, uh, you know, so one who is riding on a donkey should dismount and pray calmly. So it's better not to ride and pray. Better to get off the donkey, orient oneself toward Jerusalem, concentrate and pray. If he's unable to dismount, he should at least turn his face toward the direction of the temple. 
Here it would be east, South Africa would be north, whatever it is. If he's unable to turn his face even, it is sufficient that, his, that he focus his heart opposite the Holy of Holies. In other words, he should meditate or have the intention that he's in that space near the Holy of Holies. Okay. Now, what about a boat? We talked about a donkey. What about a boat? Similarly, the Mishnah says, one who is traveling in a ship or on a raft, Asta, and is unable to turn and face in the direction of Jerusalem. So that person should focus his heart opposite the Holy of Holies. In other words, an intention of the heart, even if physically not able to, to orient oneself, it should be a, an internal focus. Finally, the last Mishnah, and with this we'll close it out for today, Mishnah 7, chapter 4. Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah says, the additional prayer, Musaf, like what we say on Shabbat and holidays, the additional prayer is only recited in a city where there is a quorum of ten, known as a chever ear. So if you look in the sidebar over here, according to Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah, the Musaf prayer is not an individual prayer, but rather a communal one. And it is only said with the local congregation. Um, I'm going to continue reading. It seems that according to Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah, the Musaf re retains a connection to its temple roots. While the other regular prayers are only loosely connected to the temple, the Musaf prayer is strongly connected. Since the temple was a public offering, the Musaf in the temple is a public offering, the Musaf prayer does not become an individual prayer. So you can only recite it, according to Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah, in the context of a quorum. The rabbis say, no. Incorrect. The majority of rabbis say one may recite the Musaf, the additional prayer, with a chevra ear or without a chevra ear, with or without a quorum. Rabbi Yehuda says another opinion in his name, um, the name of Rabbi Elizabeth Azariah. Ah, Rabbi Yehuda says, I heard differently about Rabbi Elizabeth Azariah. He says that he says this any place where there is a chevra ear, an individual is completely exempt from reciting the additional prayer. In other words, you don't need the, um, the individual because the community is doing it anyway. So again, this is this last little piece of the sidebar. Here, Rabbi Yehuda said in his name, wherever there is a congregation, individuals exempt from saying the Muslim prayer. Rabbi Judah somewhat modifies Rabbi Elizabeth Azariah's position. Individuals are obligated to recite the Musaf Tefillah, but only if there is no congregation in his community to recite the prayer. If the community is reciting the prayer and he can't be there for some reason, then he is exempt. In other words, if the synagogue is doing Musaf and you're at home, then they got it covered. You don't need to do it. According to the first understanding is you wouldn't be allowed to do it at home. According to this understanding, you could do it at home, but you don't have to. According to the majority of rabbis, you should anyway. So we have a three-way dispute, and two of them are coming from the same, same rabbi in, in the name of the same rabbi. So clearly there was a game of uh, a little bit of a broken communication there, or uh, I don't know, broken, but a little bit of a, uh, a not 100% accurate communication regarding um, Rabbi Elizabeth Ben-Azariah's opinion. Does he say that, you, that if you are without a minion, you cannot say it, or that you're not obligated to say it? Either way, the majority of rabbis say that you should say it, so that's, that's what we do. We say Musaf, even if, there, even if we're in shul, no shul, there is a minion, there's no minion, 
we do it anyway. All right, that concludes chapter four. I really appreciate you all um, studying with me. Yeah. When it says Rabbi Judah. Yeah. Is that Judah the Prince? Yeah. That's the author of the, um, yeah, I don't, you know, I, I, for some reason I scrolled really fast and now I lost the, give me a second here. Oh, chapter six, five, four. Here we go. Yeah, Rabbi Yehuda. Yeah, so there was a tradition of what Rabbi Elizabeth Benazariah says, but Rabbi Yehuda, who was the redactor, the, the, um, the compiler of the Mishnah, he had another tradition about what Rabbi Elizabeth Benazariah said, different than the, than the norm. He had heard that Rabbi Elizabeth Benazariah said, not that you can't, but that you shouldn't. Sorry, not that you are not allowed to say it, but you don't have to say it. All right. Anyway, so that's, that's, uh, that's today. So we spoke about the Amida, prayer, the takeaway that I like. I mean, the, the, well, I like it all, but maybe a practical takeaway is we also have to be, remember that, that prayer is not meant to be rote. It's not meant to be mechanical or robotic. It's meant to be with passion and feeling and emotion and depth and authenticity. All right. Um, it's great to see you all. Thanks for joining me today for Torah and Mishnah study. And I look okay. forward to seeing you tomorrow. Same bad time. Same bad channel. See you, Sandrine and Donna and Ray and Mark. Great to see you guys. Have a great day. See you.